Hello everyone, my name is Victoria Cooper. I'm a research associate at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And I'll be moderating today's discussion alongside my colleague, non-resident senior fellow, Bruce Wolfie. Welcome to our webinar event, uh, Georgia Ground Zero of the Midterm Elections. Uh, and before we begin today's proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. With the US midterm elections for the control of Congress now finally less than a week away, voters in the state of Georgia are facing an important and highly anticipated election. Georgia voters will decide the marquee Senate race between incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock and Trump-endorsed newcomer Republican Herschel Walker in a race that may well determine which party controls the Senate. At the same time, Georgia has a major gubernatorial race with Republican incumbent Governor Brian Kemp, who spurned Trump's efforts to overturn Joe Biden's victory in Georgia in November 2020, and Democratic superstars Stacey Abrams in the race. With important election integrity issues at stake, races like these are more consequential than ever. So to discuss these issues, we are joined today by Professor Alan Abramowitz, who is the Alban Barclay Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Emory. Professor Bramowitz is an expert and frequent commentator on national politics, polling and elections. His expertise includes election forecasting models, party realignment in the United States, congressional elections and their effects on campaigns on the electorate, all of which makes him uh, perfectly uh, positioned to participate in this particularly timely discussion and uh, this conversation to be all the more special. And also here on this call today is non-resident senior fellow Bruce Wolpe. Bruce is a regular commentator on US politics across various media platforms in Australia and is the author of books on the congressional system in America. In recent years, Bruce has worked for, uh, with the Democrats in Congress during Barack Obama's first term, as well as on the staff of Prime Minister Julia Gillard and also served as her uh, chief of staff. So Bruce, let me hand over to you to kick off our discussion. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much. Uh, Alan, we are just honored and delighted that you are here. Uh, we wanted to do that. For, for, you're live from Atlanta, and, and we um, know that Georgia is ground zero in the midterms. As Georgia goes, probably so goes the nation. The Senate may well be decided by the race that's unfolding in Georgia. And so we'd like to just start with your overview of the races in Georgia. You have governor, senator, secretary of state. Secretaries of state are extremely important because they administer the election process in the United States and the legitimacy of elections, the certification of elections, and ultimately whether elections can be denied by any candidates are at stake. So we'd like to listen to you first on Georgia and then move out from there. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm first of all, I'm delighted to be here uh, with you. Um, and uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me. Um, Georgia is indeed the epicenter uh, of the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, of course, there are a number of other states um, that are also going to play a crucial role in determining the outcome of this election. I'm sure we'll talk about some of those as well. But let me say a little bit about what's happening here in Georgia. We have two very high profile races that you mentioned. Uh, one, of course, is the Senate election in which we have the incumbent uh, Raphael Warnock, who was just elected two years ago, um, but who has to run again because he was elected in a special election. So he has only two years as opposed to the normal six-year term. Um, and so he's running again this year, and he's opposed by uh, Herschel Walker, um, who was kind of pushed into the race by Donald Trump. Herschel Walker, of course, is something of a celebrity uh, in Georgia, though he's quite well known even before he entered the race because of his exploits as a football player. Um, he was a star player at the University of Georgia back in the 1980s, won the Heisman Trophy, uh, then played professional football for a number of years. And kind of that's, that's where he really became close to Donald Trump, who actually owned one of the teams that he played on. And uh, so that we got that race. Uh, Walker is a very unusual candidate uh, for the U.S. Senate in that he has never run for any elected office previously, never held any office previously. And, you know, we've seen that he, he has a lot of personal baggage. Um, that has emerged um, during during the course of the campaign. Um, then we have the governor's race between the incumbent Brian Kemp and uh, Stacey Abrams, and this is a rematch. Uh, four years ago, Brian Kemp narrowly defeated Stacey Abrams. Uh, at that time, 
Kemp was uh, the Secretary of State uh, and uh, was an open seat. And uh, it was a midterm election with a, an unpopular Republican in the White House, Donald Trump. Um, and I think Abrams surprised a lot of people by running a stronger race as she did. Um, there were a number of complaints about the way Brian Kemp uh, conducted the election in his role as Secretary of State, which he continued to hold even as the campaign unfolded, even as he was running for governor, he was still the Secretary of State, the official in charge of running elections in the state, which is obviously a uh, kind of a built-in conflict of interest. Um, nevertheless, um, Abr Abrams did very well, and and so uh, this year we have we have the rematch uh, between those two, which everyone's been looking forward to. But in this case, we have a Democrat in the White House and Kemp's running out as the incumbent governor uh, against Stacey Abrams. My apologies here. Um, <laughs> the thing about Stacey Abrams that I've been impressed with in this race is she's a superstar. I mean, she is the leader in voter registration in Georgia. She's an inspiration to Democrats across the country, but she's falling short. She appears to be falling short. And mm -hmm. why is that? Because a lot of people thought uh, she could uh, absolutely um, not command, but mm -hmm. so encourage high turnout that she would be more competitive this year than she even was four years right. ago. What's going on with Stacey Abrams and, and this race? Well, that's a question that has been asked by uh, a lot of uh, political observers. Um, I think the first thing to observe is that uh, we do expect the voter turnout to, again, be very high this year in Georgia and even across across the rest of the country as well, high for a midterm U.S. election, that is. Um, I think the difference here is less about Stacey Abrams herself and about the campaign she's running and more about the changing circumstances. Um, so in 2018, Stacey Abrams had the advantage of running in a midterm election with an unpopular Republican president in the White House. Now she's having to run in a midterm election with an unpopular Democratic president in the White House. President Biden's approval rating uh, in the state of Georgia are uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 38 I percent, mean, a little bit lower than they are nationally, which is in the low 40s. <clears throat> so that, you know, is immediately uh, is going to make it difficult for any uh, Democratic candidate. She's also running against an incumbent. And although Kemp is certainly, a, you know, has, has had his controversies, um, the fact of the matter is, you know, that he stood up to Donald Trump uh, and refused to go along with Trump's demands to overturn the results of the election in Georgia. So along with Brad Raffensperger, who's the secretary of state and also uh, running for reelection, I think voters are giving both Kemp and Raffensperger credit for their willingness to stand up to Trump. Um, they're both very conservative, um, but I think that they have a more moderate, perhaps more moderate image than they deserve, you know, ba based on that reality. So, you know, it's tough to run against an incumbent governor. Um, in American politics, incumbent governors rarely lose. Um, they usually only lose if they have, uh, you know, the national political environment is really bad for them you know, or there's some scandal or some other big problem in the state. So in this case, it looks like, uh, you know, Kemp just has some advantages and some things going for him that he didn't have going for him four years ago, and that's making it more difficult. Um, so it looks like Kemp has at least a modest lead. Um, the average across the recent polling has been around six to 8%, um, which by recent American standards is a pretty com considered a pretty comfortable lead. Whereas the Senate race is uh, appears to be you know neck and neck. Um, another thing to consider is that here in Georgia, um, you have to get fifty percent of the vote in order to win, which is different from just about every place else in the country. Um, in the rest of the country, the candidate who finishes first wins the election, whether you get fifty percent or not in a general election. Uh, but in Georgia, you need to get 50%. And of course, what happened in the last um, election in Georgia in 2020 was that the two Senate incumbents who were running in that election for the Rep two Republican incumbents both fell short 
of 50%. Both finished um, slightly ahead of their Democratic challengers, um, but fell short of 50%. So we ended up having two runoffs. Uh, and uh, the, the Democratic challengers, Warnock and Ossoff, won both of those runoff elections, which were held in early January, actually January 5th, one day before the insurrection. Um, and, and that was the key to Democrats winning control of the Senate. I mean, the uh, Democrats had to win both of those runoff elections to gain control of the Senate. And now here we are two years later, and uh, Ossoff was elected to a full six-year term, but Warnock has to run again. Again, he's in a neck-and-neck -neck race with his Republican. In this case, he's the incumbent and running against the Republican challenger. Um, and the race is going down to the wire. And once again, um, there is a possibility of a runoff because there's a libertarian candidate in the race who is garnering, you know, 2% of the vote, maybe 3% of the vote. Um, and as a result, it's entirely possible. In fact, I'd say it's 50-50 chance, uh, if not better, that neither uh, Warnock nor Walker will get 50%. And we will have a runoff again, uh, only this time the runoff will be earlier. So the good news is we won't have to wait two months for the runoff election. It will take place in early December. So four weeks, I believe four weeks after the first round. Um, and again, it is possible that that runoff election in Georgia will determine control of the U.S. Senate. Um, if we're heading into that runoff with the, if Republicans have 150 seats or already have 50 seats in hand, and Democrats have 49 seats in hand. Again, um, that race will determine control of the Senate. If Warnock is reelected and it's a 50-50 Senate again, Democrats will maintain control because of the tie-breaking vote from the vice president. We're going to drill down further. Victoria, over to you. Yeah, no, I'd love to follow up on that uh, Senate race. I mean, we're seeing two very different candidates. I think you described Herschel Walker earlier as having a lot of personal baggage. I personally like to say that he's scandal-ridden, um, whereas um, Raphael Warnock, he's generally considered to be quite sensible and experienced, and he's the incumbent um, Democrat at the moment. So I suppose I wonder, how is it that this race is so neck and neck and, you know, potentially facing a runoff in December when the candidates are just so different? How is it that we have two candidates that are managing to right. grasp appeal? Right. A lot of people wonder, especially I'm, I think from the perspective of someone looking at this race from outside of the country, how is it possible that that her, Herschel Walker is um, running neck and neck with, with Raphael Warnock. And you think to understand that, you have to understand uh, some things about American politics in 2022. Um, the, the first is that, again, as I mentioned, the, the national political environment is generally favorable for Republicans. So in a recent poll in, uh, in Georgia, the New York Times Siena poll, for example, when they asked voters in Georgia, which party would you prefer to control of the Senate? Uh, what they found was that uh, there was a, a, a four-point margin for uh, favoring Republican control of the Senate among Georgia voters. Um, when they asked about preference for the Senate in the actual Senate race, uh, in that particular poll, Warnock had a three-point lead. So there's this gap between voters' uh, attitudes toward uh, and then sort of their, their national political view of the national political race and their view of the local candidate. So, so Warnock is sort of outperforming the Democratic Party uh, in Georgia right now. He's outperforming Joe Biden, who is pretty unpopular right now in Georgia. And so in that way, maybe it's surprising that he's, that he's still um, you know, as competitive as he is. The other thing you have to take into account here when you try to, when you ask like, why haven't these scandals hurt Warnock or hurt Walker even you know, more than they have um, is, the degree of partisan polarization in the United States and the phenomenon uh, of negative partisanship that I think was mentioned um, earlier. And, and that is this tendency for, you know, this growing tendency for voters to view the opposing party in extremely negative terms um, and basically to believe that um, a victory by the opposing party and its candidates would would mean the the you know the the end of uh, America as we know it, um, and and you see this in the ads, certainly in the Republican ads. Um, there's a demonization uh, of the opposition party and its candidates and its leaders, um, 
we see it on both sides, but we particularly see it, I think, on the, coming from the Republican side. Um, and the message to Republican voters in the state and across the country really is, um, you know, that uh, a vote for the opposing party is simply unacceptable. You, you know, um, you, you know, if you, you may not be happy with our candidate, but you, you've got to just uh, put aside your concerns um, and, and remember that the, what matters here is which party is going to control the U.S. Senate for the next two years. That's really what's at stake here. And I think that's why we see that in, not only in this race, but in some of the other races um, in the swing states, especially um, that we have these very tight races, even though some of the Republican candidates are quite flawed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the reasons I find Georgia such a compelling example as well is because of the um, Election Integrity Act that passed last year. So not only is it a good example of tight races, but also of a, a state uh, where voter turnout is also um, being incre watched incredibly closely. And I think already the level of early voting is surpassing 2018 levels. So, um, I mean, mm -hmm. just in spite of these laws, we're seeing a huge amount of turnout. But I suppose I wonder, um, you know, how does legislation like this affect turnout? How does it affect the process of voting? And is it going to end up in impacting the um, outcome of the midterms in Georgia? That's a great question. Um, certainly, uh, of course, um, there were a lot of complaints from Democrats and, and there were lawsuits, lawsuits filed um, to try to block some of the provisions uh, of this law, um, which, which clearly is aimed at uh, placing obstacles in, in the way of voting for, for at least certain kinds of voters, particularly you know, minority voters and voters in big urban centers. So some of the provisions included uh, essentially um, uh, eliminating the use of drop boxes. I mean, they're still technically available, but they're in areas that are they're really uh, are not not very uh, you know available to most people. Um, uh, shortening the number of days of early voting, um, making absentee voting more difficult. Um, for example, now if you want to cast an absentee ballot, you can't just go online um, and request an absentee ballot. You actually have to print out an application for an absentee ballot fill it out and then mail it uh, in in order to obtain your absentee ballot, um, which is obviously much more difficult and requires that you have access to a printer, which obviously many people don't. Um, so what we're seeing here is as a result of this law, and there are other provisions as well that are controversial, you know, like prohibiting uh, people from giving out wa wa free water to people standing in line that got a lot of attention. Um, I think the main impact that the law is having, however, is to, not so much to change the overall turnout, but to change the method of voting. Um, and what we're seeing here is that there's been a uh, marked decrease in the use of absentee voting uh, and a marked increase in early in-person voting. Um, and overall, when you combine them, however, we're seeing record turnout in the early voting. So, um, so as best as we can tell, um, the law has not really uh, had the effect of reducing voter turnout. Um, that's not to say that that w wasn't the intention uh, of those who, who drew it up, but I think, you know, due to the uh, extensive mobilization effort that's, that's taking place, uh, and due in part, I think, just to a reaction um, from a lot of Georgia voters who believe that um, if someone's trying to stop me from voting, I'm going to redouble my efforts to vote. You know, I think that's something that we see uh, here, um, you know, especially in, in the state that was the birthplace of the, you know, the civil rights and voting rights uh, movement in the United States, uh, that particularly among African-American voters, there's just a very strong motivation to turn out and vote and not to let any of these obstacles that are being thrown in their path, you know, prevent them from getting to the polls. And and so far, the, the, the early turnout suggests that, um, that we're going to have a very, very high turnout uh, in, in, in the end. And that's one, that's one of the things that's sort of a kind of unknown here. Um, you know, one, that's introducing some uncertainty. Uh, we, we know what the polls say. Um, they say that Brian Kemp should win by a pretty comfortable margin. They say that the Senate race is going to be neck and neck and might very well go to a runoff. 
but we're not really sure how this extraordinarily high turnout uh, might impact that, and and whether you know the polls are are reflecting are accurately reflecting the the very high level of turnout uh, and the relative rates of turnout that we're seeing among different different uh, groups within the electorate. Uh, just one more question on this. Um, my ins my instinct is when I see very high turnout that actually will benefit that, that it will reflect higher black voting, higher voting of other uh, people of color, and therefore a more democratic skew to the higher turnout. It, it but it do you think that is ultimately what it's going to be? And in fact, the polls may show a closer race than the actual results will. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's possible. Um, on the other hand. Um, one thing we already see in the early voting is uh, that uh, it's disproportionately older voters who are turning out to vote in the early voting. Right. Um, and the younger voters who tend to skew Democratic uh, are not turning out in as large numbers. Um, traditionally, younger voters tended to wait to vote until Election Day and vote in a lower rate overall. Um, Democrats need a strong turnout from younger voters. That They need a strong turnout from African-American Voters, they seem to be getting that so far. Um, so it's sort of hard to say. And we know that uh, in the last couple of elections that Republican voters have tended to wait to vote on Election Day. So the fact that we may be seeing uh, the early vote skewing Democratic, you know, which is what uh, we, you know, some some analysts are, are uh, projecting just based on demographics and what we know about what primary people voted and things like that. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to the electorate's going to favor Democrats in the end. Uh, we have to wait and see, you know, what the election day turnout looks like. Um, uh, in the end, I think we're going to see a very strong turnout uh, coming from both supporters of both parties, um, and it's not clear, you know, whether one side one side or the other will benefit from that high turnout. And 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 just another important demographic: women voters. Mm -hmm. um, just given uh, everything at Victoria and you discussed on Herschel Walker and his uh, life uh, and the abortion ruling from the Supreme Court. Yes. And uh, are, are, how are women, uh, where will they land predominantly in this race? Well, there's a, there's a pretty significant gender gap uh, here in Georgia and in you know most other parts of the country. Um, the polling shows that uh, women... Uh, are much more likely to vote for Democratic candidates than men overall. The gender gap is uh, maybe larger this year than it, it has been in other recent elections, in part be because of their reaction to the Dobbs decision. Um, and, and in the early voting, in fact, women have made up a disproportionate share of the, uh, of the early voters, something like 54%, 55% of the early voters whereas women make up about 52% of the registered voters in the state. Um, so that's, a, you know, would be considered a positive sign for Democrats. But again, um, we don't know what the election day turnout is going to look like. Right. Um, so, uh, but there's no question that there is a significant gender gap. Um, and we're seeing that, in, we see that in Georgia, but we see that, you know, pretty much across the whole country. Uh, just one more question on abortion, but then I want to broaden it out as to the drivers of the election generally across the country. Uh, but abortion is certainly one driver. But in, in I've read that uh, in states that have um, relatively positive abortion laws where women can access abortion services, that it's not as important an issue because they're living in a state where they can mm -hmm. get re reproductive health care. Is Georgia one of those states, or is um, has Georgia enacted very strict abortion laws, and is that a is that a driver in the Georgia election? Georgia is not one of those states. Um, so, Georgia has enacted a very strict um, law uh, as for regarding abortion. Um, it's not an, a total ban, um, but um, essentially, abortion is it's what's called a heartbeat bill. Yeah. Uh, which is a somewhat misleading name, but essentially what it means is that abortion is permitted up to six weeks of a pregnancy, which uh, often means women wouldn't even know, a woman wouldn't even know she was pregnant. Uh, and after that, you um, it's only permitted in very limited circumstances. Um, 
uh, of, uh, I believe it's rape, incest, and danger to the woman's life. Um, one of the questions that's come up in the gubernatorial debates is whether Republicans in the state, if they retain control you know, of the legislature and, and the governor's seat, might in fact pass an even stricter uh, law and like an outright ban. Uh, in the first debate between Abrams and Kemp, Kemp sort of um, indicated that he was not interested in making any further changes. But in the second debate, I thought it was what was interesting was he did not uh, make that same statement. He seemed to suggest that he might consider further changes uh, in the law. And certainly abortion has been one of the key issues that's come up in the governor's race, but also in the Senate race. Um, Herschel Walker in the past has supported a total ban on abortion with no exceptions. Um, he has also supported a national law banning abortion, um, which would be very significant. Obviously, if you have a Republican uh, House and Senate, that is something that could come up very well come about, although it would face a certain veto from uh, a President Biden. Uh, but in the uh, campaign now, he's sort of backtracked somewhat on that uh, and indicated that, well, now he supports the Georgia law. Uh, but of course, the issue of abortion has been very prominent in the Senate race, both because of the fact that it's a, an important national issue uh, and because of Georgia's uh, uh, strict abortion law, but also because of Herschel Walker's personal history uh, and the fact that here, here you have uh, a person who supports a ban on abortion, who opposes allowing women to have access to reproductive health care, but who has himself um, apparently um, paid for abortions for at least two women. Um, now he denies it, but you know there's there's a good deal of, of evidence um, that uh, that supports these accusations, including receipts, uh, including you know messages um, that went that he sent to the women. Um, so, um, but his his um, response to this has been essentially the same as Donald Trump's response to accusations that he engaged in sexual harassment and, and assault on women. Deny, 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 you know, just keep denying. Um, and, uh, you know, for the most part, it seems that re Republican voters, those who are, who are in the Republican camp and support him, um, are willing to go along with that. They're willing to, to accept that. Um, the question is whether there are enough swing voters who might be uh, turned off by these stories about his um, payment for these women's abortions, about his, uh, as well as his, you know, past history of, of, uh, of violence, yeah. which has also gotten a lot of attention during the campaign. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, let's pull back from Georgia and just, uh, if you could briefly talk about what you think are the driving issues in the campaign, and then what are the key, I mean, well, we'll get to the House. Victoria will talk to you about the House, but what are the sure. key um, Senate races that you're watching? It seems to me there are half a dozen Senate races all within the margin of error, and they will determine right. control of the Senate. Exactly. So um, there are at least four Senate races that right now are uh, up for grabs. Um, and given the fact that we have a 50-50 Senate, um, a shift of just one seat uh, uh, in favor of the Republicans. If they just gain one seat, um, they'll have a majority. And Mitch McConnell will be back as majority leader. Um, so we have Georgia that we've talked about, Arizona, um, where the incumbent Mark Kelly has been holding a lead um, over his um, Trump-backed challenger, Blake Masters. Um, but that lead has narrowed in the polls. It, seems to be somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 3%, 4%. Um, it was a little bigger than that in the New York Times Siena poll, but it's been smaller in some others. Um, so Arizona is certainly a key race there. And there are some other key races in Arizona as well. Um, then we have Pennsylvania. Um, that's an open seat where you have a Republican senator incumbent uh, retiring, um, a Pat Toomey, and uh, you have uh, the Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman uh, opposing uh, another Trump-backed uh, candidate, um, uh, the celebrity uh, TV doctor Mehmet Oz. Um, and that race, uh, initially it looked like Fetterman uh, had uh, a pretty comfortable uh, lead, um, but you know there have been issues involving his health. Um, he suffered a stroke back a few months ago, and it's been 
you know, recovering slowly from that. And it's pretty clear that he has not fully recovered yet. Um, so that became an issue. And then uh, especially in the recent, the, the one and only debate that took place between those two candidates when Fetterman had to make use of use of cl- closed captions to uh, 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 read the questions that, that were being put to him in the debate. Um, and it's not clear, you know, what impact that is going to have. Uh, Oz is not very popular, but uh, again, the national political climate is favorable to Republicans and Pennsylvania is another swing state. So I'd say that one is really uh, uh, up for grabs. Um, uh, then, you know, you, you, you've got, um, uh, so you've got Arizona, uh, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, and, and um, I'm trying to remember the fourth the fourth the, state, Nevada, Nevada yeah, think. Nevada, of course, uh, in, in, in Nevada, another Democratic incumbent there, um, uh, uh, Cortez Masto, uh, in a neck and neck race there with Adam Laxalt, as you mentioned, huh? uh, someone comes from a, 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 a very well-known uh, p- political family, uh, heir to a, a Republican, uh, you know, strong Republican history, history of Republican uh, uh, leadership there. Um, that race has been neck and neck, um, and uh, will hint, a lot will hinge there on the uh, Latino, uh, the size of the Latino vote. It's very very important to both Arizona and Nevada, and how large it is, and and whether Democrats are able to get the kind of margins among Latino voters in those races that they need, uh, uh, you know, in in order to be victorious. So those are the four that everyone's been looking at for a while. But but you know, there are a couple of others that I think. Uh, bear watching as well. Um, New Hampshire is certainly one where I think a lot of political observers thought that that race was um, over uh, and in the kind of in the bag for the Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan when uh, Republicans nominated Don Baldock, um, who was a, 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 a far right election denier, although he's backtracked on that. Uh, once he won the nomination, he changed his his uh, opinion on uh, uh, on whether uh, Joe Biden was was uh, actually um, elected the legit the legitimate president of the United States, um, but it appears you know from the recent polling there that uh, um, you know that that one is not uh, it's not at all certain uh, you know we, we have to watch that one very closely. I think Hassan is probably still seen as at least a slight favorite. But it's it's you know it's it's going to be fairly it's going to be fairly close you know in all likelihood um, we have North Carolina which is another state where you have a Republican incumbent who's retiring and there um, you have uh, uh, again a fairly close race um, the Republicans certainly favored there the Republican Bud um, uh, uh, has led in in most of the polls but the margin is you know is is pretty close. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's some other, there's some potential upsets. Um, but I think in general, I still think that, that it's going to come down to those four races, um, uh, to, uh, Nevada, uh, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And if, uh, if Democrats win three of them in all likelihood, they'll, they'll come out of this with 50 seats. Uh, if they win four, if they win all four, they'll come out with 51, which would be a net gain of one, um, which would be a great relief to a lot of Democrats because it would mean they wouldn't have to um, depend on Joe Manchin's uh, vote um, to pass that legislation in the Senate. Um, so that's one possibility. But if, uh, you know, if, if Democrats only win two of those four races, um, that would give Republicans 51 seats and yeah, I think anything's possible there from a Republican sweep of all four races to a Democratic sweep of all four races. And I think they're all going down to the wire and and uh, we won't really know. Uh, uh, we, we won't we won't have a, a very clear indication of how those are going to come out until they actually count the votes, um, which may take some time, uh, by the way, in, in, in some of these states. Yeah, we may not know on election night. Victoria. 
Yeah, great. I'd, I'd love to follow up. I mean, I'm just going to shamelessly ask the million dollar question, considering your background in polling, I feel like you're well positioned to answer this. But what are we looking at? You know, what are the predictions here for the House and Senate? I mean, you've spoken a little bit, right. to the Senate, but maybe more so to the House. Are we looking at a, a red wave? What, what, what can we expect? Uh, for the Senate, as I think I've already indicated, I, I think that it's a toss up as far as which party will control the Senate. Uh, and, and I've been saying that for months. Um, so I have a forecasting model for the midterm elections that relies on, it's very simple, it has two predictors. One is the generic ballot, um, which right now is showing a Republican lead of one point on average if you go by the 538 average uh, and, and the 538 website. Um, and, and the second factor is just how many seats is each party holding or defending uh, going into the race. And the advantage that Democrats have in the Senate elections this year is that um, they are only defending 12 of the 34, 30, I think it's now 35 seats because of a special election in Oklahoma. So 12 of the 35 seats are Democratic seats, 23 are Republican seats. So Republicans have uh, more to lose, you might say there. Uh, now, the large majority of those seats are uh, are safe you know, for one party or the other. So it really comes down to, you know, five or six um, uh, competitive races. Um, but uh, it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that this, you know, I think most observers would say the Senate could go either way. Um, and we could, we, we could end up anywhere between a 53 Republican seats and maybe 52 Democratic seats. Um, the single most likely scenario, I would say right now, um, is a 50-50 Senate once again. Um, but, you know, that's not, uh, far, that's far from a, from a certainty. On the other hand, when we look at the House elections, uh, I, I believe from the beginning and my model actually predicted that Republicans would uh, win a majority of seats in the, in the House. Um, that's the normal pattern in midterm elections. The President's party um, loses an average of about 26 seats in the House if you average it across the 19 midterm elections that we've had um, since 1946. Um, the, the number of seats that the president's party loses is quite variable. Uh, and there have been two elections where the president's party has won, you know, actually gained seats in a midterm election. But in both of those cases, the circumstances were very different from what we have this year. In 1998, Bill Clinton had an approval rating of over 60%. And Democrats actually gained a handful of seats in the House. Uh, that was during the time that Republicans were trying to impeach Bill Clinton, and that was not popular. Uh, in 2002, Republicans gained, uh, I believe it was eight seats in, in the House. But at, at that time, George W. Bush, the Republican president, had an approval rating of well over 60 percent in the aftermath of the 9-11 uh, attacks on the United States. So the circumstances were very different. You had very popular in, in, uh, incumbent presidents in the White House. With an incumbent president with an approval rating of well below 50%, um, it's hard to imagine that that, that happening. Um, uh, so it's pretty, it was pretty, it's pretty, pretty clear all along, I think Democrats are very likely to lose control of the House. The question has been, you know, how many seats are Republicans going to gain? Are they gonna have a very narrow majority? Maybe gain 15 seats or 20 seats at most? Or are they gonna have a bigger majority if they can pick up 30 to 40 seats? Um, and I think most of the indicators suggest that the gains are going to be more in the, you know, in, in the lower end of that range than in the higher end. But I wouldn't rule out, a, 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 you know, a, a larger Republican uh, pickup. Um, the reason for thinking that the Republican gains might be more limited are, first of all, that the Democrats have such a narrow majority going into the election. Um, so. You know, there, there aren't a lot of Democratic seats out there that that are um, in, you know, uh, in Republican territory, I'd say. Um, in some of these previous midterm elections, like 1994, uh, when the Democrats lost over 50 seats in the House, 2010, when they lost over 60 seats in the House, you had a lot of Democrat, uh, Democrats holding seats in districts that typically voted Republican for president. That's not the case now. Um, uh, there are actually only seven 
Democrats, Democratic, well, as before redistricting, so I'm not, it may be a little bit different since redistricting, but there were only seven uh, Democrats elected in districts carried by Donald Trump and only nine Republicans elected in districts carried by Joe Biden in 2020. Um, so there just aren't as many Democratic seats available for Republicans to pick up. Um, but there are some, you know, certainly there are some that are you know, both in districts that um, Trump won and in, uh, others in districts that Biden may have won narrowly um, that, that, that could flip. And uh, uh, it, it's looking more and more like re Republicans are very likely to, to have a majority in the House. The size of that majority is, is going to matter, though, because if it's a very narrow majority, um, I think a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, is going to have a, a very difficult time keeping control <coughs> of that caucus. He may have a difficult time in any event, given the pressure he's going to be under from the far right uh, within the caucus, which is very influential, um, you know, to uh, carry out all sorts of, uh, you know, investigations uh, of Democrats and even potentially to try to impeach um, high-ranking high Democratic officials, in, including perhaps President Biden. Um, so, um, but the smaller the majority, the, you know, the more difficult uh, McCarthy's uh, task is going, going to be there. Um, Bruce, um, you might need a, your microphone. <laughs> okay, uh, under these two scenarios, let's talk about President Biden for a moment. Let's uh, concede that the House will go Republican. So what's the difference between a, a Republican House and a Democratic Senate and a Republican House and a Republican Senate as far as Biden and his last two years of the first term? Well, it's an enormous difference. Um, Republican House is going to be trouble. It's going to give Biden trouble, um, you know, regardless of which party controls the Senate. But control of the Senate uh, matters even more because it's the Senate alone that has the responsibility for um, you know confirming presidential uh, uh, appointments, uh, both of uh, you know of executive branch officials and and, and of uh, and judicial nominations. So if we have a Republican Senate, um, I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for President Biden to get any of his judicial nominations through. We know what happened last time. Republicans controlled the Senate and there was a Democrat in the White House under Barack Obama. The Republicans basically just, you know, for the last couple of years of his presidency, just put, put, a, put a block on, on judicial nominations, including, of course, the Supreme Court nomination when that became vacant. Mm -hmm. I think we can expect the same thing again. Um, and there may even be an effort to block some of Biden's uh, appointments to the, within the executive branch as well, the ones that are uh, subject to Senate confirmation. So uh, it's gonna make life very, very difficult for Biden. If the Democrats still control the Senate, uh, Biden will at least have the uh, ability uh, to get his uh, judicial nominations through. And he's been very successful in doing that so far. You know, um, that's one area where uh, Biden has had a, you know, quite a good track record. Um, he has nominated and the Senate has confirmed a, uh, a substantial number of federal judges, uh, only one Supreme Court justice, of course, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, but uh, uh, quite a lot of district court judges and, and circuit court judges. Uh, and those, those appointments matter uh, a great deal. And so, um, you know, it, it, would be, it would be a really big deal if Republicans took control of the Senate. Um, uh, if they you know, take control of both the House and Senate, um, I think what'll be interesting to see will be um, how Biden chooses to you know, uh, run against the Republican Congress. <clears throat> we've seen this before when we've had a Democratic president and a Republican controlled Congress, and that Republican controlled Congress blocks you know, every possible policy proposal put forth by the president and blocks nominations of judges and executive branch officials and carries out all sorts of investigations, uh, um, including uh, perhaps uh, trying to in, uh, impeach executive branch officials and, and the president. Um, it can actually work to the benefit of the president. Um, so, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, I think, benefited a great deal 
from having a Republican Congress, uh, and particularly from having Duke Gingrich in charge of that Republican Congress. Um, and he was able to you know, run ag against Gingrich uh, and, and the Republican Congress and, and easily win re-election in 1996. Um, you know, Barack Obama won re-election in 2012, even with having a Republican House. Democrats did still control the Senate um, at, at that point. You know, so uh, in some ways, a Republican Congress, or at least a Republican House, could work to the advantage of uh, President Biden if, if it is running, you know, for a second term in, in 2024. But I think overall, Democrats would much rather not have to deal with that situation. Yeah, that is my last question. I'll say, I'm going to save the Trump questions for last, okay? But uh, the, sure. the next one, the question I, I want to ask is, will Biden look um, be weaker uh, if the Republicans control both the House and the Senate? And therefore, will that affect, will that have an, an effect on his judgment as to whether he should run again in twenty? I think the answer is not, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, in fact, as I mentioned, ha having a Republican Congress can actually work to the advantage of a Democratic president. Um, we saw that with Clinton. I was going to go back even even you know further in into history. Of course, Harry Truman famously you know won re-election in 1948 by running against the do-nothing Republican Congress that was elected in the 1946 midterm election. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, having a Republican-controlled Congress uh, there uh, can actually serve as, you know, give a, a Democratic president an issue uh, right. that can work work to, to his advantage. Um, it depends on how he plays it. You know, obviously, it depends on other things as well. Um, what happens to the economy between now and 2024? Um, uh, if is the economy going to go into recession? Uh, for how long? You know, what what kind of, will we have? Will it recover in time for the presidential election? You know, what will happen to inflation? Um, they, there are a lot, a lot of unknowns, and, and those will all play an important role. Um, and then, and then we have something else going on right now that I think is very troublesome, and and that is the potential um, for a, a substantial number of Republican election deniers to win office in the midterm election this year. Um, we have uh, Republican election deniers, uh, those who refuse to accept the results of the 2020 election, who are you know, going along with Trump's uh, lie about uh, uh, Biden uh, being uh, uh, stealing the election from him, um, running for key offices in a number of states, you know, including governors uh, and, and secretaries of state. You mentioned the secretary of state is the official in charge of running elections in most states. We have Republican election deniers um, running for Secretary of State right now in the, in Arizona, in uh, in in Michigan, uh, in and in Pennsylvania, uh, the governor appoints the Secretary of State, and Mastriano, who's the Republican candidate for governor, there is a, uh, uh, a far far right candidate who's a, a an election uh, denier, and, and he would get to appoint uh, a Secretary of State who might refuse to accept the results of the 2024 election. So there's a lot to be worried about there um, as far as, you know, how will the outcome of the midterm elections this year, uh, will, will, if some of these election deniers lose their races, will, will they accept the results is one question. Um, some of them have you know, already indicated that they, that they might not. Um, and then the, qu the question is, if they are elected, you know, what, what will happen in 2024? Um, could we see a situation where a, uh, uh, if Joe Biden, you know, wins some of these swing states very narrowly again, uh, where re Republicans in charge might refuse to accept the results? Right. Victoria. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, I, I want to continue on this conversation with Trump, but I also, I mean, I'm very happy to hog all the questions, but if uh, those who are joining us today um, have any questions, please use the chat function to ask them and I'll make sure that we have time to uh, yet pose those questions to Alan. But, you know, let's turn to Trump. I mean, we keep hearing that 2022 is not necessarily a referendum on the president this time around, but maybe a precursor to 2024. And even in the primary elections, we saw that Georgia was maybe one of those 
states that made Trump not look so good. Governor Kemp, you know, succeeded. Brad Raffensperger right. also succeeded. And it was right. one of those occasions where people started thinking maybe Trump doesn't have such a hold anymore. But I guess my question to you is how big is Trump's base in Georgia? And, you know, do you think he might declare a presidential campaign um, after, after the midterms this year? Well, it's, you know, Trump has given every indication uh, so far that he plans to run again. Um, he hasn't officially announced, of course, but um, he's talked a great deal about, about running again. Um, I think he sees uh, a president, another presidential campaign as a way not only to potentially get back in the White House, but a way to perhaps um, avoid or delay uh, potential prosecution or some of the some of the uh, cases that, that he's that he's facing right now, both uh, in the investigation of the January sixth insurrection, but also some of the some of the other issues. You know the the um, uh, the, the documents that that were taken um, to away taken to Mar-a-Lago. You know all these things. Um, so I think we have to assume that he is going to run. He, you know we don't know for sure. Um, if he does run, um, I think there's a good chance that he will win the Republican nomination. Um, the polling suggests that he would be a pretty strong favorite um, against any of the potential opponents, even if they choose to run against him. So, I, you know, it, it's far from certain, but I think there is a distinct possibility that Trump could run again, in which case we could very well be looking at a rematch um, between Trump and Biden, because I, I think one thing that will keep Joe Biden in the race that will that will probably would probably be likely to increase the chance that he does run for a second term um, would be the uh, the, the, the uh, chance to run against Donald Trump again. Um, and and I, I think Biden sees uh, believes that he is uh, in a position to. Um, save the country from a return of Donald Trump to the White House and that he may be the only one who can do that. That may not be true, but I, th I think that Biden probably believes that is true. And so if, if Trump runs, then I think Biden will, will in, all, in all likelihood, will run again. He may run anyway. Um, and obviously, you know, his health is an unknown as well. I mean, he is almost 80 years old um, and there's always a possibility that that he could um, have some some serious health issues and challenges that might prevent him from running. And the same thing is true of Trump. Uh, uh, so you know there there are a lot of unknowns here, but I think a Trump Biden rematch is a distinct possibility um, in in twenty twenty four. I want to just on the Senate outcome and Trump's thinking and decision. It seems to me if the, if the Republicans take the Senate, that means the Trump candidates won in very close races and would vindicate Trump's intervention in, in the uh, right. primaries and so forth. But if the Democrats hold the Senate, that means that Trump's strategy lost, that he lost. And does that weaken Trump as the Republican nominee in, his, in a campaign to be Republican nominee? It could. Um, there's no question that um, Trump played a, a, an unusually high you know, a profile, uh, 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 maintained an unusually high profile in, in, in the 2022 primaries. Um, you know, uh, endorsing candidates in a, a large number of Senate races, of some, some governor's races, House races. Um, so, you know, if, if, if his uh, candidates that he endorsed here, um, and in, in many cases, these candidates um, were running against uh, other Republican candidates who were endorsed by kind of more Republican by Republican establishment leaders, for example, in Arizona, uh, um, where um, both the candidates for governor and and senator uh, won primaries over uh, establishment candidates, um, and, and likewise in uh, you know in, in Pennsylvania, where uh, Mehmet Oz. Uh, it was endorsed by Trump late and and uh, and won uh, that primary over uh, kind of a more conventional uh, re Republican candidate. So if, if those Trump endorsed candidates lose um, most of their races uh, and if that 
in fact, costs Republicans control of the Senate, which is a distinct possibility because, you know, if Walker and Oz and Masters um, all lose, then it's going to be very difficult for Republicans to uh, to win control of the Senate. Uh, it, it means that Democrats probably are are going to be are going to maintain control of the Senate. And if that happens, I do I do think it will embolden, you know, other Republican leaders to stand up to Trump in 2024. Um, we've seen that that you know can be a successful strategy. Um, you know, in in Georgia, we saw and Brian Kemp uh, and Brad Raffensperger stood up to Trump. Um, and, and but they were able to survive um, because even though they were standing up to Trump, um, they supported many of his policies. Um, they ran as staunch conservatives, so that allowed them to keep the support of uh, a large part of the Republican base, uh, except for the most ardent uh, Trump uh, Trump loyalists. And uh, so that that's a strategy that may appeal to more Republican candidates uh, and leaders in 2024 if these Trump-backed candidates um, take the party down uh, and and cost them an election that they should have won. Uh, We just have a few minutes before uh, Victoria will close us out. And I just want to go to your profession as a professional pollster. And uh, you um, live, breathe, eat polls daily. (laughs) And uh, there's been a lot of discussion on polling this year and whether the there are a whole bunch of new Republican-oriented polls and they get right. into averages and so forth. And so is there, but what's your sense of the health and accuracy of the polling profession in 2022? I, I'm troubled by the, what's going on in, in, in that field right now. Um, you know, over, overall, there aren't as many um, polls being conducted in these key races, and, and there certainly aren't as many mainstream or reputable media polls being conducted. And, and the void is being filled by um, some polls that I think are of kind of questionable um, validity, um, uh, polls that seem to have a clear, you know, partisan or ideological axe to grind. So when we look at, you know, and, and, and they're sort of what I call it flooding the zone. I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at um, the, the number of polls conducted in some of these key states, like in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in Nevada, or, or, and some other states o- o- over the past uh, you know, three or four weeks, a disproportionate number of them are being put out by, uh, orga- by polling organizations like Trafalgar, um, by Insider Advantage, um, uh, Coefficient, uh, whatever that is. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these are online polls, and they're reputable online polls, but um, it concerns me when I see that, first of all, they're, they're doing the, well, these snap one-day one polls, um, which means they're just sort of mass robo-dialing thousands and thousands of numbers or sending out thousands and thousands of text messages to get their, you know, to, to, to get their uh, res, uh, results that quickly. Um, and, you know, and then when, I, when you look at some of the uh, what I call the internals, like, you know, if you, if you look at the breakdowns of the support for candidates across different demographic groups, you find some things that are highly questionable. Um, so in some of these recent polls in Georgia, for example, conducted by um, Insider Advantage and uh, Trafalgar, um, for example, generally show um, uh, Walker, for example, um, doing better than in other polls. Um, you find that the main reason for that is they're showing that um, the Republican candidate is winning 20 percent to 25 percent of the black vote, um, in, according to these polls. And, and that's very important in Georgia, where African-Americans make up about 30 percent of the electorate. So uh, to me, that, you know, that just raises questions about the methodology that's being used here and about, you know, how to interpret those polls. Well, the, the true test will come a week from now. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, Georgia's not the only state where there are some dubious polling going on, uh, in, in, in my opinion. But uh, uh, we'll be able to kind of grade the, grade the polls based on their actual performance um, in, in a little over a week. Well, which is why we want to listen to you. Um, Victoria, over to you. And thank you so much, Alan. Sure. Yeah, thank you very much. And, you know, this is it's been great to have you on recently, Paul. 
Australian audiences and 75% said that the US midterms were either very or somewhat important to them. So, I mean, Australians are clearly watching this election and, um, I mean, are probably also living, eating and breathing these polls coming out, trying to predict what's going to happen this time next week. So thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise. And I know I've personally very much benefited from, um, yeah, all of your um, insights today. I've got reams and reams of notes surrounding me now and um, I'll be, <laughs> be watching these elections very closely as I'm sure our audience will um, this time next week. But Alan, thank you very much for joining us. And Bruce, thank you as well. And uh, for those joining us at home today, make sure to watch uh, and keep an eye on all the content that the USSA will be putting out in terms of the midterms as we roll uh, around to them next week, including more of our public opinion polling. Um, but until the next webinar, uh, have a very good day and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much.